For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Welcome to the second of our special reports on the fashion industry and COVID-19. This one is all about how fashion is responding to the shortages of PPE, which is personal protective equipment. We'll be hearing from some of the designers who are making scrubs for health workers, as well as those making masks for anyone. Now, we've seen fashion step up across the board. I just read a story about the sportswear giant Nike switching production lines to make face shields for American hospitals. And then there's independent designers like Christian Siriano, who led the charge of making masks for fellow New Yorkers. In Italy, some of the factories that normally make luxury gear for Armani and Prada are now producing medical overalls. And in the UK, the accessories designer Anja Heinmarsch has been busy fundraising to make washable gowns for the Royal Marsden Hospital. That's so they don't have to throw them away. She's working in partnership with Jenny Holloway from Fashion Enter. And there are loads more examples, because fashion skills are useful. If you can cut and sew, if you can make stuff, then you can potentially be part of the virus response efforts. And you know what? The need is great. In March, the chair of the UK Doctors Association told the BBC that his peers felt like cannon fodder. And there's all these stories about healthcare workers being forced to improvise, sew their own protective equipment or make do with items that really are made for different purposes. I mean, nobody wants to imagine a nurse on a long shift resorting to using plastic bags to protect themselves. In the United States, they're also using the battle analogies. One doctor in Kentucky told the New York Times that he had absolutely no way to protect himself while intubating patients in respiratory distress. And another Californian surgeon said it felt like being at war with no ammo. I mean, this stuff is upsetting. No wonder we want to step up and do what we can to help Although it looks like some of this stuff is finally easing, in the worst-hit countries and city hotspots, there's an eerie new normal that feels like it's taken hold. And even when we get on top of this virus, there is this feeling that masks might well be here to stay as an accessory of choice. I called Timo Rissanen, who teaches fashion and sustainability at Parsons in New York. Timo, we're recording this on April 29th, and yesterday CNN was reporting that the coronavirus pandemic appears to have passed its peak in New York. The stay-at-home order is set to lapse on May 15. But Governor Cuomo is still urging caution. What is the atmosphere like in New York now? Is it seven weeks into quarantine? Yeah, it'll be seven weeks this week. I think more than anything, it's sadness. I mean, the loss of life has just been devastating and... and um, I'm very lucky I haven't lost anyone close to me, but, you know, six friends of friends have passed and um, and I've had about a dozen friends and uh, colleagues and students who were sick. They are all out of hospital now. The last friend got out of ICU last week. So there is kind of a sense that things are calming down, but it's been a really sad time and um, it's kind of difficult to ignore the sirens. They've been pretty nonstop for the last month. As someone who's lived in New York for a decade now, you obviously love the city. How do you think that it can come through this? I do think that it will come through this. Um, and I, I wasn't here when 9-11 happened, but people do reference that as an other kind of mm. 
tragedy that has hit the city and that people did eventually recover from. But I do think that it will be very slow and very cautious because until there is a vaccine and until there's an effective treatment, we have to be cautious, especially in a city that is so densely populated as New York is. Like I was on the subway for the first time in over a month today. I had to go and pick up some things from work. And um, it was eerie. It was rush hour. And there were three other people in the car with me. And um, and that was at 8.30 in the morning, which normally like you would be like sardines. Yeah, well. And um, and I, that, it, it did hit me. It was like, how do we go from this back to how it normally is? Like, it has to be done slowly. Otherwise, there will be another peak, I think. I mean, I'm not a medical expert, but I would imagine that it has to be done very thoughtfully and carefully. And thankfully, we have Cuomo, who is someone with a deep respect for, you know, medical experts and also just deep compassion for people, which is not necessarily the case with um, the country leadership. There's been widespread criticism of Trump's handling of the crisis, including hospital preparedness and the shortage of PPE. The health service is underfunded. The national stockpile hasn't been properly replenished in a decade. And then there's those confusing briefings. We've heard Trump suggest that masks are disappearing out of the back doors of hospitals, with no evidence to support that. But then again, you've probably heard his ideas on using disinfectant. So I think there's a general feeling of maybe it's about having to look elsewhere for leadership, locally or in communities. Timo, how are you seeing fashion mobilise in the city? Fashion really has come together as an industry around PPE. I know of several brands who have been making gowns, who have been making masks, and it's been really inspiring to see designers like Christian Siriano and and also um, brands like 3S4 have committed uh, facilities and materials and labor into making PPE. And it was very fast too. When Cuomo first made the call more than a month ago now, for any business that was able to manufacture anything, uh, Siriano, I think, was literally the first brand to kind of step up. And um, now there's pretty widespread work. I've seen people from Eileen Fisher making masks, um, brand after brand, sort of committing their resources to doing that. And also just the coming together. So there's an organization that has emerged called Masks for Humanity. I came to them through Lauren Fay from the New Fashion Initiative. Lauren started a massive email chain with, I think, probably had close to 100 people on it. And at the same time, like literally the same weekend that she did that email, a former colleague of mine from Parsons posted that her sister, who works for three hospitals in upstate New York, they were out of everything. Like they literally had nothing. They were washing their supposedly disposable mask or, or cleaning them with hand sanitizer to make them last. And so I was able to post those hospitals on the spreadsheet that Mask for Humanity was maintaining. And um, about a week and a half ago, those hospitals got delivery of masks. And um, it made a huge difference for the nurses um, working at those hospitals to, to have something. And this has been obviously devastating for all of humanity. It's been devastating for the fashion industry. But, but there are these moments that just give me immense hope and optimism about the kind of industry that we can be, not hypothetically, but for real. I mean, that's who we are being right now. Here's Governor Cuomo on April the 30th, unveiling a collage of hundreds of homemade masks that had been sent to the city. That's a self-portrait of America. And you know what it spells? It spells love. That's what it spells. 
You have to look carefully, but that's what the American people are saying. We received thousands of masks from all across America, unsolicited, in the mail, homemade, creative, personal, with beautiful notes from all across the country, literally, just saying, thinking about you, we care, we love you, we want to help. Should everyone wear a mask? Now, there's no easy answer. New Yorkers have been ordered to wear them in public now. And Germany and Austria are among several countries in Europe that have been introducing such requirements. However, this remains the official advice from the World Health Organization, as told by Christine Francis, a consultant on infection prevention and control. WHO only recommends the use of masks in specific cases. If you have cough, fever and difficulty breathing, you should wear a mask and seek medical care. If you do not have these symptoms, you do not have to wear masks because there is no evidence that they protect people who are not sick. However, if you are healthy, but you are taking care of a person who may be infected with the new coronavirus, then you should wear a mask whenever you are in the same room with that person. And remember, if you choose to wear a mask, use it and discard it properly and clean your hands with alcohol hand rub or soap and water. Dr April Baller, also from the World Health Organization, warns that... Mask alone can give you a false feeling of protection and can even be a source of infection when not used correctly. Masks should only be used by healthcare workers, caretakers or by people who are sick with symptoms of fever and cough. Three things, however, seem pretty clear to me. The first is that there is a need for PPE for health professionals and frontline workers in other industries too, and that mask wearing in general looks set to hang around. The second is that people want to be of service during a crisis. And the third is that fashion skills, meaning pattern cutting and sewing, also designing and organising, are both in demand and underused at a time when many fashion businesses are on pause. I met Jaina Zweiman when I was writing Rise and Resist. She is the co-founder of the Pussy Hat Project that resulted in millions of crafters knitting and crocheting those pink cat-eared hats that turned the Women's Marches of 2017 into this glorious sea of pink. For her next project, called Welcome Blanket, Jaina called on America's craft community to make blankets to welcome refugees into America. So when Timo mentioned masks for humanity, it shouldn't have surprised me one bit that Jaina was behind that too. I Skyped her at home in Los Angeles. Jaina, do you want to begin by just telling us the story of Masks for Humanity? What's it all about? Sure. So my background is that I'm co-creator of the Pussy Hat Project and also the creator of a project called Welcome Blanket. And both of those are very large-scale craftivism projects where individuals can participate. So I have that in my background as well as also doing architecture. And at the beginning of March, I started getting a lot of emails from people from the Pussy Hat Project, from Welcome Blanket, from childhood friends, starting to reach out and saying that we really need to be making masks. 
And my first impression was, you know, if healthcare workers need masks, they should have medical grade PPE. No question. Uh I don't like I don't want to touch that. That's what they should have. You know, when I was thinking about craft, I was thinking, you know, it could be really great for personal masks, but Mm -hmm. let's make sure that people are getting what they need and we're not kind of gumming up the works with a DIY project. And actually it is sensitive, isn't it? I mean, your work before has been about activism and raising issues onto the public agenda. So this is something different. This is about providing needed equipment. It's something more fundamental and I guess a bit scary. Exactly. I think it's terrifying. Um, I've come from a family where there are people who are in the healthcare system. And I mean, it's really terrifying when you hear accounts of nurses being told that they should just hold their breath or hearing that where my father was a physician, there is four masks per day. And that was at the beginning of all of this. And even just, I'm a mom of a toddler, the place where I gave birth, the hospital, hearing from the nurses there that they needed them. And I think it's that insane and outrageous need that our healthcare workers and first responders were calling out for that really launched me into action. In the U.S. right now, we are probably changed a little bit today, but we're sheltering in place in most places. And it can feel like when you're at home for six weeks or I don't know how long I've even been home at this point, um, you can feel like you're not doing anything. We can be helping healthcare workers by getting them some coverage. We can be helping essential workers like people who are at the grocery store who don't necessarily need to have medical grade equipment, but they should have a mask that you know covers their face and is comfortable. So Masks for Humanity, the catalyst was a need in the healthcare community, but what also sparked it was really this sort of thankfulness that I get to stay at home and looking out and seeing that the pandemic is affecting so many people in so many different ways that there's like thousands of people who are out there working because they have to. Absolutely. And they're keeping everything working. Everyone's doing their part. That's the privilege aspect of this conversation, Mm -hmm. which I think is uncomfortable and that so many of us would rather sidestep. But the whole idea Mm -hmm. of, you must have seen those memes that are like, your grandparents were ordered to war, you're ordered to the sofa. You know, all you have to do is stay at home. (laughs) And yet, of course, there are many, many people in our communities who are not able to choose to stay at Mm -hmm. home. They're the ones that have to go out there and work to keep us safe or to keep bread on their table. It's this kind of discomfort, isn't it, of we're so lucky, those of us who are able to choose to stay at home. I mean, all that. But there's this desperate feeling that we need to help, isn't there? Like it feels Mm -hmm. like we are useless or something. This provides an easy way to do something. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Mass for Humanity, we will take requests from healthcare workers, but also essential workers and groups that work with particularly vulnerable populations. So we have homeless shelters who are requesting help and food banks requesting help and elder care facilities requesting help and doulas. And so there's this spectrum of people who really need some extra help. And while... There are many of us who have the skills to sew, um, might have a sewing machine, a little bit of fabric, can get someone else fabric. We can actually physically manifest something that's helpful. So practically, how does it work? Um, So Master of Humanity is a really simple project. We have a Google Doc running of the groups that still need masks. And then we've been putting the call out to makers and makers can come check out the list 
the people requesting can also include their own specific mask pattern if that's important. Okay. And that's happened a couple of times. So it really gives a sense that if you make these masks for this request, they are really needed, they will be utilized, and you are of service and you're really helping. Um, so it's super simple in that way. We're also collecting information about mask making groups because something that's really special about this time is that people across the United States are organizing locally and helping their local fire departments and, you know, their local urgent care center. And this is a way that other groups can reach out and say, hey, you know, I'm out on Long Island. We need more people to be donating fabric or we're looking for more sewing machines. And they can do that. And if I see that and, you know, let's say I have a friend who's over in Long Island, I can mention this list and they can easily find even like a local community that's working. All of these masks are an opportunity to protect someone. Well, this has been a project that clearly shows our common humanity, our ingenuity mm -hmm. and our connection and kindness. We're also in a context that shows a broken system, one that has left mm -hmm. large numbers of people bereft and without the support that yeah. they need. And I mean, this has been a, a hard lesson to learn, I think, about America, just not having enough systems in place to ensure that everybody gets an equal piece of the pie, right? Yeah. And I, growing up when I did in the 80s and 90s in the US, we were taught that the United States is exceptional. It was, it was, part, of our, yeah. it was part of our school books. Um, and to have doctors and nurses and the people cleaning those rooms not have the protection they need is like sending a firefighter into a fire without protection. And it's horrific. It's really horrific. And it's really pointed out how much we have to change mm. to make our country more equitable for everyone. And it should be completely unnecessary that Mass for Humanity exists <laughs> at its core. Um, I cannot wait for the day that it's just not necessary anymore. And so, you know, it is in so many ways, very, very dark time for a lot of people. And I'd like to try to take that gloom and think about sort of what we can be doing to make yeah. things better. Yeah. You see a lot of horrible things that are happening, but you also get to see through these kinds of projects and the kind of people that it attracts, people who are creative they're kind, they're industrious, they're giving. Like, these are the people I want to be surrounded by. Um, and yeah. I learned, I sort of learned at the beginning of this pandemic that when I get really angry and outraged, my mechanism of coping isn't to make sourdough bread or clean or anything like that. It's to make really large projects that create <laughs> space for people to take action. You know, I feel like so many of us are reflecting on who we are and we really have to sit with ourselves more mm -hmm. and, you know, consider what we're doing in the world. And I've learned that for better or worse, um, <laughs> this is this is what I do when I get really, really outraged is, is to try to find a way to make something positive out of it. Luckily, there are other people who are doing it too. Jaina, would you call yourself an organizer? Uh, I am an organizer. I'm a designer. 
Um, these are all very kind of design mechanisms. I do organize. I organize people. I'm a terrible sewer. Um, <laughs> so this does not this does not stem out of my ability to sew well. But I think I have a way of looking at things where. I see opportunity and ways to get involved and ways to make a difference. (laughs) I don't know if you heard that. I asked Siobhan Kennedy, a stylist, creative consultant and the Faders fashion editor at large about her project PPE Volunteer. It kind of came out of like a mad, obsessive idea frenzy. So I was watching Cuomo's (laughs) uh, New York New York State on pause address um, press conference. And he's saying that like with it, I think minute 302 or something, he says something to the effect of I will pay premium prices for PPE. We are having shortages. We need ventilators, all these things. If you don't make these supplies, but you have the equipment that can, we will pay top dollar for them. We are in need. And I just, my head just sort of went boom. Like I went from telling my friend I was going to go to bed to being up until three in the morning researching. I just started thinking, wow, I have been a former global sales director. I have dabbled in PR. I know, you know, factories, if I don't know them directly, I know how to get the information. I have a wealth of uh, resources and a network that I could utilize and put like the pieces together. So I started researching everything from standards that you needed to make PPE. I started researching factory sizes. So I was on Google Maps, like looking at, you know, if I couldn't find the sweet number for these various factories in New York, I was then like literally on street view, looking at the size of it, looking at the building, being like, oh yeah, I totally know that building in the garment center. I am naturally a determined person. And, you know, I think there's a mix of my brain. I've got this like very, I'm completely an artist, but then I've got a very type A part of me that's like a problem Mm -hmm. solver. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, see big picture. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I know the, you know, vice president of production over at Mara Hoffman. And I know they produce a mixture locally and abroad. And I'm just like, start literally going down, you know, the productive rabbit hole of how do we make this happen? Okay, so you set up this concept. What was it? I was looking at every category of PPE from from gloves to masks to even ventilators to ventilator splitters. I was researching 3D printing. I was looking at how to make the actual bonnets. I was looking at what are the categories of what you need, um, what type of fabrics, what kind of seams you need down to the uh, offices and the contacts that you need to contact in order to get the funding. I put all this information together because I thought I can at least circulate this and if I can probably get this in front of factories. And because, you know, also Cuomo had presented that they were offering funding and they were it was going to generate jobs in my mind. So it was a combination of things happening. Like we could save people and also, you know, get people back in the workforce. So it was yeah. just like all hands on deck. And so come Monday, I wake up and I just decide, well, OK, I'm going to send this out. At this point, it's just like a Google Doc. I put together an email and everybody in a brief and sort of a press, like a press release. And like, wow. it was a lot of, it was like a full. You were really missing your to, job. <laughs> I was, well, I wanted it to be digestible because it's a lot of information. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people, especially in times of chaos and disruption and anxiety and fear, you know, yeah. you see a document of stuff. I wanted to, to make it digestible for people and to understand what I was trying to do. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, 
this has to be a website. Like this has to be a hub for everybody. Like this can't just be a Google doc. There has to be a way for people to interact with this thing that isn't just some, you know, friend of a friend. And by Thursday, I had built this whole <laughs> website. It was navigable, the clicks, it has, uh, you know, interactive maps, it links to other third party it's literally, as I thought, saw it, a hub of information of connecting the dots and using a network to connect people. I'd love to hear more about some of the reactions that you've had. It's been pretty remarkable, um, quite honestly. When I sent out the first round of emails, so many people wrote me back. So many people forwarded it on. So many people posted it. I was suddenly immediately, my friend Fendrine, who owns a PR consulting agency, she linked me up with one of her clients who has a factory here in New York, and he wanted to immediately help and put it, you know, put it to work. And so I sent him all the links and all the paperwork and all the contacts and who he needs to talk to. And, and then I think a week later, I'm getting an email from or a text from a friend who's their medical students in a Bronx facility. And then that was like my first sort of like, we need 4,000 units of some, you know, to various PPE. And they gave me the categories. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, that's a lot. It comes in such interesting waves. Like, so last week was doulas in Brooklyn who um, provide like low income family doulas and they because all essential workers right now are there's shortages in PP for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Two weeks before that, it was abortion clinics in the Midwest. And then there was a, a facility in the Bronx. It's an inspiring thing to hear from my side. But how has it impacted you? It's really given me some real purpose. And when I think about lives being lost and how I could potentially help or my industry could help and an industry that I often grapple with, you know, like it's an industry that while I love what I have done in it and outside of this crisis, I struggle with what our industry represents. So for me, it's been in what way? Well, because we are, you know, one of the biggest polluters, we are a very egotistical industry. It's about, you know, closing the circle off tighter rather than opening it up wider. And I'm very much like, I believe in collaboration. I believe in, you know, your brain is just as valid as mine and your and your ideas. And I, I live more by that creed rather than the, you can't sit with us sort of mentality. <laughs> yeah. so, but Shaban, has it made you, I mean, I know that you also told me before we press record that you're working on a film that's in the sport world and you do different things too, but has this made you, has it renewed faith, if you like, in the way that fashion can be different and could it be a turning point? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen, you know, people absolutely like roll up their sleeves and what, and what have you. Yeah. And I think, that part has been phenomenal. And that's even more so than fashion. I think that's like humanity to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I think that we are particularly good in, you know, first world countries and of just being very self-focused and not thinking about your neighbor. And I think it's been really remarkable to see people helping in any way they can, helping, you know, their neighbors, the neighbor that they don't even know their names, you know, just really yeah. doing whatever they can to make a difference because unfortunately, you know, because of the situation, at least in this country, because our federal government has failed us and it's requiring us to, as citizens, step up and be frontline, basically, in a way, you know, if frontline from the from your home. And, and it's been a remarkable, all over the shop, conflicting, beautiful, uplifting, heartbreaking experience. But I think what I've stepped away from with PPE volunteers that it just empowers me more to just to give a damn about people and to, to always to keep fighting. It's easy to make a simple cloth mask. 
whereas officially approved fluid repellent gowns or coveralls or the particulate filtering N95 respirator masks are another story. While some are moving to produce these things locally, it's not practical for most fashion businesses. Scrubs, however, fashion can do. You know the ones, typically in blue cotton. You've seen these tops and pants on George Clooney in ER. In real life, medics wear scrubs instead of their own clothing under their gowns or other PPE. And they could risk bringing infection home without them. Alexandra Nedelkovic runs the social studio in Melbourne, one of millions of small fashion businesses around the world impacted by the shutdowns. For the social studio, sewing scrubs has been a life raft. We first heard about scrubs about three or four weeks ago now, and it was a conversation that was had with a doctor called Dr. Sandra DeMeo, who let us know that there was a shortage of scrubs because a lot of healthcare workers are um, wanting to wear scrubs to offer extra protection. He asked if there was any way we might be able to help which was something we really jumped on straight away and put our whole kind of organization's energy into working on. I feel like it was a really fortunate opportunity that came our way and it's definitely one we seized yeah. um, and did everything we could to make happen because for us the most important thing is that we do keep our staff employed because they are particularly vulnerable people mm-hmm. We are a social enterprise not-for-profit and we're dedicated to creating education and employment opportunities for young people from a refugee or new migrant background and we do that using the vehicle of fashion. So we're actually made up of a not-for-profit fashion school that's accredited by RMIT University and um, we're also an ethical production studio, a fashion label and a retail store. All the shutdowns that happened as a result of COVID-19 really affected all aspects of our organisation and with 80% of our staff from a refugee or new migrant background, it's a really tricky time. And so for us, it was really essential that we found a way to pivot and um, help keep our team active in the organisation afloat, but also give everyone a, a really important sense of purpose and bringing everyone together during a time that's really quite traumatic and isolating. What steps have you had to take to ensure that your staff is safe? Yeah, that was a huge challenge as well. So um, right about the time that this kicked off, all of the social distancing things had come into place. So we had to be really kind of innovative around how we made that work. We um, are utilising our production studio and our school space in Collingwood, but um, we're also about to move locations. So we were able to use our new studio space that no one's moved into yet. And then all of our makers um, are able to also work from home. So we've kind of created a really sort of ad hoc way of you know cutting things in one place doing bundling and all of those sorts of things it's been a highlighting local production's ability to be really agile and fast being able to pivot literally overnight to producing something we've never made before is testament to how powerful the local production industry could be you know, you basically, these scrubs would still be on a boat coming from offshore if the, you know, order had been placed at the same time yep. and produced offshore. So it really shows that local production is a really powerful thing. Um, it's really important that we have it here in Australia. And it's something that we definitely need to foster and put more energy into. It's, you know, this this pandemic is just highlighting, you know, how how fragile, I guess, a lot of those sort of systems and things that we rely on um, with offshore actually are. We're quite a small production studio, so um, the scale of what we do will will never kind of be super huge. But, you know, it's definitely a space that we're interested in and and just one that I think is not necessarily that easy to access in Australia. Mm. 
for example, we had actually registered our interest in producing PPE officially through through the government tender process um, before we kicked off scrubs, and that's still a process that's um, not really been made very clear and that um, we're still exploring, but there's been no real kind of like kickoff in, in that happening. Uh-huh. So I think that, the, you know, those processes need to be simplified. In the UK too, there's a lot of red tape around producing PPE. Official channels have been slow, and as the virus took hold in London, designers started getting calls from medical workers and carers asking them to make scrubs. This happened separately to designers Phoebe English, Holly Fulton and Bethany Williams. When they found out they weren't alone, they decided to do something about it together. With Cosette McCreary, who calls herself a professional connector, they set up something called the Emergency Designers Network. This is Holly Fulton. Holly, you're a fashion designer based in East London. I've actually been to your London Fashion Week shows. You make beautiful, detailed, very cool, but quite decorative work. And now you're making scrubs. I mean, it strikes me that the comparison is quite surreal. It's Yeah, it's a little bit of a transition from, from my normal output, shall we say. Yeah, you're right. My work is normally very kind of print and embellishment focused. So I'm quite a kind of maximal person I would say in in my own sort of design sensibility and the kind of transition through to working on the scrubs project has been interesting but it's kind of highlighted how a lot of the skill sets we have as uh, designers and fashion designers are very transferable into other sort of realms and I think actually ironically it stood us in very good stead to kind of respond quite quickly to the current situation and whereas there's been quite a lot of frustration for a lot of companies within within the UK in terms of getting responses from, from government and, and working with the NHS to try and address some of the needs with the shortage of PPE that we're facing. Um, we're quite used to working, if you like, at a breakneck speed for fashion shows and yeah. really being quite reactive in how we sort of work with things. So I think that's allowed us a kind of agility and a sort of speed that maybe other people aren't used to working at. It did also make me think it forces us to consider the practicality of clothes, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's going not not right back to basics, but kind of really going back to the core of what is what is essential. And, and mm. in terms of the actual sort of prototype that we've been creating in, in collaboration with the Royal Free Hospital, that's the first hospital that we've been working with. It was very much about actually stripping off anything that wasn't essential. So if we didn't really need that pocket, can we remove it just to sort of speed up the production time? So it's been a very different approach to probably how any of the designers that are involved with the Emergency Designer Network usually work. It's, it's very much, as you said, about creating a very functional, basic, utilitarian kind of garment, um, which is probably the antithesis of what I normally do, but has become kind of quite a passion for us to sort of address that and to to really get it down to a very finely tuned design that can mm. be sort of reproduced quickly and easily um, across the whole country how it kind of started from my side and also from Phoebe and Bethany's side. Um, that's Phoebe English and Bethany Williams, who also started media and with me and Cosette McCreary. Um, I was approached directly by several hospitals and, and sort of trusts within within England, um, basically asking for urgent assistance to create PPE for them. But were they literally just researching local makers or did you know someone or have contacts in the health service? I think they must have literally kind of been looking at London-based or, or UK-based designers wow. um, to actually try and get some insight. And that, to me, was an indication of of the urgency of the situation. And I was quite sort of shocked by that kind of initial response because it wasn't just one or two places. It was, you know, upwards of 10, a dozen that were sort of contacting me. And then 
I was actually contacted directly by one of my mentors who's got a very close affiliation with the Royal Free Hospital, as I mentioned. And she sort of said, can you do anything about production to assist me with this? So I thought, OK, I'm going to try and take this a bit more seriously and see if I can can get anything, even on a very small scale and position to assist with this. And I contacted Phoebe because I know she has a huge database of designers. She's very hot on sustainability and, and very, very good at kind of linking people and situations mm-hmm. together. And it turned out that her and Bethany had already had some sort of discussions and the same had been approached by sort of separate institutions. So it made sense to kind of bond together because, you know, we have much more strength collectively than we do as individuals. We kind of set out, as I said, working with the Royal Free Hospital. We got a set of their scrubs and we copied our pattern very specifically from that because we wanted to make sure that what we were making although it isn't technically classed as PPE because we're not making it in a government certified factory, that it was as close to the kind of official medical standard as we could get. So we worked quite closely with them to ensure that our prototype met all their needs. Uh, We took advice with them regarding sterilisation, which involves washing all the garments at 90 degrees to kind of try and make them as clean as possible before they go into that environment. So we kind of thought scrubs were basically the garment that is it's not a waterproof layer, but it is something that we can make that sort of falls through that PPE government signed off line, if you like. So we felt safe working with that and we felt confident that we could achieve something that was of the standard that would be suitable to actually make a serious difference within hospitals. So once we'd kind of initiated that and had the pattern cut, we'd then identified through working with Fashion Mind Table and Make It British, we identified pattern cutters and and cutters that could cut the cloth for us within the UK. So it was amazing to get the support from them for free as well. Um, We had our first batch of fabric subsidised. And again, we're purchasing that from an NHS authorised supplier. So it meets the kind of spec required. And we had the intention of starting out with 10 designers initially, just to kind of see how manageable we could make it and what we could kind of do. And it's actually gone to sort of closer to 50 within the sort of first run. And now we're looking at well over 100 within the sort of second batch that we're kind of working on now. So that includes individual makers. So it's individuals working in isolation of their own home. It includes larger manufacturers, quite often ones that we have a sort of connection with. So I, for example, do a lot of work with John Smedley. Just to interject there, John Smedley, for those who don't know, is an iconic British knitwear company. Yeah, so it's kind of... This isn't their normal remit, no. but they, they do have um, an amazing sort of operation in Derbyshire. Um, and I've been to the mill several times. And we sort of discussed how they could set up, if you like, a, a sterilised kind of cell within the within the factory to kind of make these scrubs specifically. And um, they were very keen to get involved and work with kind of local hospitals in Derbyshire to them and also supply half to us in London. So we were able to kind of, they funded their own cloth and we were able to, you know, give them the spec, give them our patterns and work very closely on that process. So I think what's been amazing is how larger brands as well as smaller designers have also reacted. And there has been some frustration because a lot of people have tried to find the kind of avenues to go down and it's just, the information's not there. You know, there's a huge amount of fantastic manufacturing within the UK that isn't really utilised normally for the production of PPE. Um, which I think um, and I really seriously hope is something that's looked at moving forward because I know Phoebe produces everything in the UK and and Bethany does a lot as well. We also make everything that we do in the UK now. And from a sustainability point of view, it makes great sense to me to keep it close to home and to sort of capitalise on the heritage of craft and, and the skills that we have that are you know, not going to damage the environment so much, potentially transport wise. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of for us a kind of real 
an eye opener, if you like. It's kind of highlighted manufacturers we didn't know about, and and the sort of the capacity and the willingness of them to collaborate has been really quite incredible. Do you think this might almost be a turning point for more reshoring of British manufacturing? I seriously hope so. I mean, it's something we work with quite a lot of quite small sort of operations within the UK, but you know, amazing skill sets. The kind of level that they can achieve is fantastic, and the issue has always been that there's a price difference, you know, it is slightly more expensive to make it here. And it takes a bit of a kind of leap of faith on the part of the consumer. And I think with regards to kind of how the population interact with clothing, I think it's just having that willingness to spend that little bit more or that ability to spend that little bit more to buy something that's made here. And hopefully we're getting to a point where that's starting to happen more. And I'm hoping that if you like the kind of the current unprecedented time that we're in will make people review how they spend and, you know, it certainly made me think about what I buy and my, and my kind of also my output into the industry and sort of taking that really quite seriously and quite responsibly. You've been raising funds through GoFundMe and we'll share a link, but how much of this is being funded through donation? Who's footing the bill? Are the hospitals paying for the gear? How does it work in that regard? The important thing about our sort of our operation is is completely voluntary. So all time, skills, energy, efforts are, are being volunteered by everybody that's involved. So that, for a start, has been probably, as I said, one of the most humbling aspects of it, that people that are potentially in quite tight financial positions themselves have still donated their time and skills to work on this project. And we're running everything off donations. And we've had a few sort of private companies and brands secure cloth for us. So to make a set of scrubs to kind of contextualise it, it costs £6 to buy the fabric and then 50 pence to cut the fabric. So we're looking at a sort of unit cost of £6.50 um, and that gives us a really straight multiplier to say to somebody, OK, if you want to help us, we want to make a thousand sets, it's going to cost this. And so we've been very lucky to have a lot of, as I said, the fantastic manufacturers donate their time and skills for free. So we're working on logistics with Netaporte and Matches. So they're, they're working together. It kind of highlights how it's actually... You might imagine there'd be a rivalry between those two companies, but it kind of highlights how that's all evaporated. And this really is about collectivism. It's about kind of ignoring any preconceptions of fashion. And it's really about just joining together as best we can to address the current situation. Phoebe English doesn't like to shout about what she does. She's one of those people who prefers to quietly get on with the work itself rather than spend her time promoting it. But the world has noticed. Last season, Sarah Moa wrote on Vogue.com that Phoebe's show was, and I quote, crowded with people who'd come to learn from her. In the summer, Phoebe was invited to speak at Glastonbury about sustainability. And the WhatsApp group that she set up, which is called Fashion on Earth, is all about sharing sustainable solutions with her peers. I asked her how that groundwork helped her get the EDN up and running fast. I mean, obviously, it's a really extreme time, but it does feel like it's been a natural progression from what we were already working on in a way. You know, we'd, we'd spent the last couple of years trying to build a collaborative cross-industry movement of people sharing solutions, sharing ideas, sharing contacts, so that we can start as an industry moving together towards less damaging practice. Because it's only when we work as an entire industry that we begin to have any traction with that. Me working in that way alone in the studio is very well, but it's not going to have enough impact on the very very large scale of the damage that we produce as an industry so collaboration 
and knowledge sharing and working as one body on one movement was something we were already trying to to build and encourage and promote so in a way that mentality was already in place I'm trying to use all the fear and the anxiety I'm feeling as an energy to fuel the activities but it is a very strange time and we we live next to a main road and every night you just hear ambulance after ambulance screaming down the road and it is it's really hard to sort God. of focus your energies when you know you have that happening and as the EDN we're obviously receiving direct requests for PPE items and scrubs from hospitals and those start coming in you know around after about nine o'clock every night they start coming in and that's quite harrowing you know hearing how in need they are absolutely Um, so it's a it's a very very strange time but we do have a huge amount of skill ability and manufacturing capacity in this country so as a united group being able to utilize those things on a voluntary basis to try and alleviate the issue is very empowering so we're we're trying to use that to propel ourselves forward and to keep moving forwards and keep producing more and more of these items because the need is very very great Can you tell us about the moment of inspiration? Yeah, so we were all being individually approached by hospitals. Um, I did a a call out on our Instagram just saying, you know, we've got sewing machines here, all our projects have cancelled, you know, can we help? Can we make anything? Can we sew a mask? You know, this was right at the beginning before we'd sort of learned about all the restrictions on those things. But um, so I did a big public call out to say that we, we would like to help. And Holly, I think, saw that and she'd been contacted by the Royal Free Hospital in London. And obviously, I was already quite close with Bethany because she's, you know, part of Fashion on Earth. And, you know, we work along towards the same goals. So we had a call together and that night I'd been sort of lying awake all night, really anxious and worried and feeling really helpless and useless. And it just kept going round and round in my head, you know, if I took all of my skills and all of my contacts and all of my knowledge and if I then added it to someone else's contacts and skills and knowledge and someone else's contact skills and knowledge and then somebody else's and we multiplied it by four then we suddenly had quite a lot of information and we had potentially quite a lot of solutions and quite a lot of help ability to help so it was about sort of multiplying those things by four and you know having the ability to actually make a difference the generosity has has been really overwhelming and it's made us I think all of us in the group extraordinarily proud to be part of this industry you know I've spent the last two and a half years talking about how this industry can be better and actually in the last couple of weeks I've never felt prouder to be part of the fashion industry Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.